If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of First Timothy. We'll be looking at the second half of that first chapter. Good news comes in a lot of different forms. Bree and I have recently heard of a, an old friend who uh, had a new baby. That is, that is good news. It's good to hear that kind of news. We've had the opportunity to catch up with old friends. This was good news for us as well. The weather has been exceedingly nice for people. Uh, we realize that that is indeed good news. You are here this morning, friends, and that is good news. That is Good news all the way around, but not all good news is equivalent. Not all good news is equal. Having your wife tell you that tonight is taco night should not be equivalent in good news to finding out that a baby has been born. It's, it's close, but it's not quite the same. So not all good news is equal. And last time what we did was we left in verse 11 with Paul talking about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. This is the good news. The word gospel is just another way of saying the good news. There is good news that God has glory and that he is blessed. He is a joyful, a happy, a content God. It is in his self-contained love that we see his joy and his blessed nature. And this is, of course, where we also see his glory best. So if this is good news... The question becomes, what kind of good news is it for us? What makes this gospel good news? What makes good news glory and a blessed God? Why has it been entrusted to Paul? What what are we to take away from this? What kind of good news is this for us? Let us read from verse 12 through verse 20 what Paul has to write to Timothy. Let us see if we can figure out what kind of good news this is for us. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is indeed the inerrant and infallible word of our God. What kind of good news is this for us? First, I would put before you that the gospel is powerful good news. The gospel is indeed powerful good news. Immediately when we come to this verse, these verses, especially in verse 12, we hit something of a snag. Paul seems to say that he was appointed to the service of Christ because Christ thought him to be faithful. But that doesn't seem to be the way that Paul talks about himself, not only here, but even in the narrative of Acts, when we hear about Paul's conversion, we don't get the sense that he was appointed because he was faithful. He was anything but faithful. In chapter 9 of that book, we have the conversion experience of Paul, 
where he is riding to Damascus to persecute more Christians, to throw them in jail and to haul them back to Jerusalem. And in the middle of the day, Jesus Christ shows up bright, shining as the sun, and he is struck blind. Jesus goes to a man named Ananias, and he tells Ananias, go, you're going to see Paul. You need to lay hands on him. You need to pray for him. I will give his sight back. Ananias says, listen, I don't know if you know this, Lord, but Paul persecutes us. And Jesus tells him, he is my chosen instrument. Now, at this point in time, Jesus has already laid out the plan that he has for Paul. He is his chosen instrument. Paul has done nothing that would even be considered, considered in any way, shape, or form faithful. It's hard to imagine that Paul is here appointed to the task simply because he is faithful. As though his faithfulness to Jesus meant that Jesus looked at him and said, Okay, I guess you could be an apostle. I guess I could send you out. You've shown yourself faithful. If nothing else, we are very, very clear, even in this passage, that Paul does not consider himself to be faithful, but instead, we have every indication that it was a grace of Christ poured out upon him. Notice first, he says, I thank him who has given me strength. He says, I thank him. You don't thank people for what you've earned. How many of you, when your boss cuts you a check, go back to him and you look at him and say, oh, man, I gotta tell you, I'm so thankful that you paid me for all the work I did this week. You know, you, you fold it up and you say, you owed me that, see ya. You're not thankful for it. You're thankful for things that people give to you. You can be thankful that God gave you that check. You can be thankful that God allowed you to have the ability to earn, but you're not thankful necessarily your boss paid you what was owed to you. This is a strong indication. Now, Paul didn't even think that this was earned. This was something that Christ just gave to him. It was something that was gracious. Secondly, he mentions that Christ has strengthened him. Paul seems implicitly to understand that he was not fit for the task, that Christ had to help him and strengthen him for the task that he was given. It indicates then that Paul understands that in the equipping that Jesus gave to him, Jesus thought that he would be faithful. So there is a sense in which it is Paul's faithfulness that Jesus foresees and says, you are therefore appointed to be my apostle, but Christ gives him what he needs in order to be faithful. This is the way that God always works. That which he commands, you can't keep on your own. So what does he do? He provides you with the spirit to keep what he commands. What he commands, he also wills that you would do. This is exactly what's happening to Paul. He has strengthened him, he has molded him, he has caused him to be faithful so that he would, with strength and with passion and with faithfulness, carry out the service that God had called him to. And friends, this is extremely good news for us. Because Christ has not called you to be saved. He has not called you into his fellowship so that you could sit there like a bump on a log waiting for heaven to come to you one day. That is not the calling that Jesus Christ has placed on any of our lives. And while the service that we are to render looks nothing like what Paul does, none of us are apostles. None of us have seen the risen Christ with our bare eyes. None of us are called to write scripture. None of us are called to be heads and, and guide and lead the entirety of the New Testament church the way Paul and the other apostles did. We don't have a shape and form like Paul did. Yet nevertheless, we are called into the service of Jesus Christ. And he gives us power. He gives us power over sin. He gives us power to serve him, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He gives us power to proclaim the goodness of his kingdom. Thus, while we are not like Paul, we should never, ever think that we don't have a role to play. 
All of us have a role to play. All of us have been grafted into the body of Jesus Christ. And just like every bit of your body is there to help the body achieve its goals, whatever those goals might be, so Christ has put you in a body so that you would help it achieve those goals. The Lord has left tasks for us. There are people who need encouragement, and some of you are fantastic and encouraging. People need to be saved, and some of you have been gifted for evangelism. Some people need to have economic aid, and some of you have been gifted with money to aid them in that. Some of you have been gifted with being compassionate and caring, and you can come along those people who are emotionally weak and frail. God has given you gifts to use for the building up of the body of the church. Realize how wonderful this news is. You know what kings of old used to do? They would have mercy on people, but they rarely then appointed them to important and noble tasks. You would clean the sewers, or you would go to prison, but you wouldn't be dead. But that's not what this king has done for you. Christ doesn't appoint you to menial tasks. He appoints you to finish the very work that he has come to achieve, the salvation of sinners, to make the body of Christ what look like what it should, to make his bride beautiful and glorious and wonderful. That's what he has given you as a task. That is not a minor thing. That is a major thing. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, something that I referenced in the prayer that I prayed this morning. Paul writes there, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Our job, teachers, preachers, is to equip you for the work of the ministry. This is not the ministry. This is a part of the ministry, but this is not the ministry of the church. You are to do the ministry of the church. He has called you to do these things for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is your task. Christ has called you to that service. He has appointed you to it. And good news, he has made you able to do it. He will strengthen you. He will keep you faithful. The gospel is powerful good news. So be humble and serve and pray for the gospel is powerful good news. And secondly, the gospel is plentiful good news as well. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Paul's former life is, again, just a depiction of a wasted life, of an angry and insolent and jealous man. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is accused by Jews in the area of speaking against the temple. And so he goes on a very long speech in which he he ends by not only portraying the entire history of Israel, but talking to these these blind and hard-hearted men who have always always stoned the prophets saying the righteous one has come to you and you have disregarded him and crucified him. So angry are they that they stone him. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we read these words, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. One chapter later in Acts chapter 9, We read about Saul again. 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let it be without doubt that Paul is an exceptionally angry man. He is an exceptionally zealous for whatever he considered to be true. He is full of vengeance and he is full of wrath. He is doing so, blaspheming the Lord, making sure that people do not agree with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ and Messiah. And in doing so, he not only blasphemes the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but he desires others to do so. In Paul's own words, in Acts 26, he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And not only locked up many parts of the saints in prison, and only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Notice what he's saying. I tried to make them blaspheme. He didn't want them to deny the God of Israel, but what he did want them to do was to deny that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior. So he wasn't content with blaspheming himself, but he pulled people along. He tried to make them blaspheme. Notice his own words here. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He speaks consistently here in 1 Timothy when he says that he was a blasphemer. Not one who simply speaks wrongly against God. Not one who simply utters slander, but insisting on it. Consistently doing it. Not letting it slip once or twice, but this was the mark of his life. He was a blasphemer. Purposely going out of his way to drag the name of Jesus Christ through the mud. He was a persecutor. He punished those who spoke rightly about Jesus. He sought to lock them in prison and agreed to their bloody deaths. He was insolent. He was not just violent, but he was a violent, haughty, prideful, and aloof man. He knew that he was right, and he refused to listen to anything that would tell him that he was wrong. So let us be clear. Paul was not, in any way, shape, or form, a good man. He was quite full of himself. He was taken by his own zeal and in that without knowledge. In his prideful anger, he persecuted people to death who had done nothing wrong. Indeed, what he did was exactly the opposite of what God's law called for. He put the righteous to death and he, the unrighteous one, was spared consistently and time and time again. This is what the Old Testament calls an abomination and Paul was nothing much more than simply a walking abomination. And it's one thing to do this to people, but the New Testament evidence is that Paul didn't just do this to people, he did this to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In that same passage in the book of Acts, when Jesus shows up to convert Paul on the road to Damascus, suddenly a light appeared from heaven and shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't just persecuting the people of God. He wasn't just persecuting people in general. He was persecuting none less than the Lord Jesus Christ. To touch Christ's people is to touch Christ himself. So it is quite surprising, I think, in verse 13, when we read that he received mercy because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. And Calvin and a number of other commentators after him and even before him have thought that this is actually the cause of him receiving forgiveness. So he received forgiveness because he didn't know what he was doing. 
He didn't believe correctly, and, and he was ignorant of what was going on here. So the opposite of this is true. If you know what's going on, and you, you believe somehow, and you still do what is wrong, then that is a, a high-handed sin in the terms of the Old Testament. You are, you are going against the very fabric of what you claim to believe and claim to understand. And so because of that, Calvin and other people said that doing things out of ignorance and doing things in belief is the exact opposite of what Paul is doing here, and it is what we would call the unpardonable sin, the blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. We find that particular passage in Mark 3, 28 through 29, and the parallels if you'd like to look it up. But that, that is a really odd way to take this passage. It's almost impossible to think that Paul thought that he actually received mercy because he acted in both ignorance and in unbelief especially, especially acting in unbelief. He didn't earn mercy because he was ignorant or filled with unbelief because Paul himself talks about those things being worthy of death themselves. Ignorance is only excusable when it's avoidable or unavoidable. So if we were to go back to medieval times, worrying about and blaming medieval doctors for not knowing correct anatomy and physiology and psychology would be indeed wrong because they're ignorant of those things. They can't know them. But this isn't the deal with Paul. Paul's ignorance cannot possibly be the fact that he didn't have access to the fact that Jesus Christ was God. He has the Old Testament. Paul himself will then testify later in the book of Timothy that it is able and capable of making one wise for salvation. He will be the one who will continually point to Jesus out of the Old Testament. When Paul says, I preached Christ and him crucified, that doesn't just mean he got up and talked about him crucified. At the end of Acts chapter 9, when he's in Damascus preaching and teaching that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's doing so out of the Old Testament. The very book that he was dedicated to that he didn't realize was speaking of this Jesus. His ignorance was his own, and he was blind to it because it was his Especially frustrating is the idea that being in unbelief would have allowed him to receive mercy. Paul calls unbelief nothing short of sin itself. Not only is it a reason not to be considered sinful, not only is it a reason not to be given mercy, unbelief is itself a reason for God's anger to be thrust down on people. In Romans 14.23, he says very clearly, Anything that is done outside of faith is sin. So the fact that Paul was acting in unbelief seems very odd to be the basis upon which Christ would give him forgiveness. It is unlikely that that is what's going on. Rather, what he's doing is explaining why he had to receive mercy. He's saying, I had to receive mercy. I couldn't earn the favor of Christ. I couldn't buy it. I couldn't figure it out with merit. None of my zealotry, none of my zeal for the law, none of my persecuting the church, none of my doing what I thought was best and right would ever earn me mercy. I received mercy because I needed mercy. I needed mercy, not what I would earn. I needed God to not give me what I was owed. I was a sinner and I didn't earn it. I walked in unbelief. I walked in ignorance. And therefore, God gave me mercy. Not what I deserved, but he kept back what I deserved from me. But it wasn't just the fact that he received mercy. That next verse, oh, that next verse. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. 
the fountain of this great overflowing is nothing less than the grace or the love and the faithfulness of Jesus to Paul. Jesus loved Paul, even while Paul hated him. Jesus was gracious to Paul, while Paul raged against him. Jesus was kind when Paul's anger drove him to murder. He was forgiving when Paul locked up the innocent. Jesus was loving to Christ, or Jesus was loving to Paul in every way. And he was faithful to him. He didn't punish him for his sins. He didn't punish him for the wrong that he had done. But instead, he forgave him and walked with him through dark moments. Even though Jesus knew from the moment he saved him that Paul would suffer much, that suffering wasn't a punishment, that suffering was because his word will always expand through the suffering of his people. He knew that he would suffer much. He would be persecuted. He would be pained. He would be shipwrecked. He would be troubled. But he would never be left alone. He would never be without the comfort and the peace and the grace of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ isn't a shallow sort of good news. It isn't enough to get your feet wet but not cleanse you. The good news is not enough to arouse your hunger without providing the feast. It is not enough to get your throat wet without quenching your thirst. That is not the good news that we have. The good news of Jesus isn't like that. It is a well that is deep and wide. It is able to quench your thirst. It is able to cleanse you from all of your iniquity. It is able to give you a hunger and provide the feast for that hunger. If it was enough to cover Paul, friend, it is enough to cover you. The good news is a plentiful good news. Paul was a wretched sinner and Jesus Christ saved him. Which brings us quite clearly to the third point, and that is the gospel is paradigmatic good news. It is a paradigm of good news. It, it follows a pattern. Paul was an example, and I think that it's not even quite fair to call him an example. He seems like he is setting himself up as the example of the grace of God given to people. This is what makes it really, truly good he is the chief example of the great summation of the mission of Christ, that Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, if you want to know what that looks like, look to me. How can we know this? How can we know that he came into the world to save sinners? We can know it because he saved Paul. Paul was unworthy, as we've already detailed, in every single respect of receiving grace and mercy from Jesus Christ, and yet Christ saved him. No doubt, when Paul talks about him being the chief of sinners, it's not simply a rhetorical flash or some sort of over-exuberant expression of contrition that he's trying to go overboard with. No, he, he heartfelt that sentiment. He knew that he was the chief of sinners. He knew that he was the embodiment of all that was evil in the world. He raged against his Christ, his Lord, and his God. And yet, Christ saved him. Friends, this saying is trustworthy. Paul is looking at Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, you need to trust this. This is it. This is what you center yourself on. This is what your ministry is founded on. This is what your life has its fulcrum upon. That Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. You can trust it. You can trust in your ministry. You can trust in your lives. You can trust in your evangelism. This is the way Christ works. He comes to save sinful people. 
He doesn't come to save moral people. He doesn't come to save people who got really, really close and just need a kick over the edge. He has come to save sinful people. You can trust that the gospel will bring the guilty to repentance. You can trust that the gospel will give people new life. You can trust that the gospel will provide them with a vision of the glory of the blessed God. You can trust that they will see their sin upon the cross. And you can trust that the gospel will provide them forgiven, forgiveness, adoption, and ultimately a full salvation for every bit of who they are. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You can trust this word, but it's not just for those who carry the word with them. It is also for those who will receive that word. It is worthy of full acceptance and full acceptance by us and by everyone else. It is not just that Christ will work that way for others, but it is true for you as well, friend. We are not like Paul. Many of us live good lives, highly moral, We don't steal, commit adultery, or lie. In old Southern Baptist parlance, we don't smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. We pay our taxes, and when people are trying to walk back to their car at Walmart, we don't run them over. We let them pass, slowly and surely. But we have to accept the fact that even in all of our good, we too are incredible sinners. We blaspheme against God. We rage against his image. We want him to look like we want him to look. We are very, very slow to hear his word and to change according to what that word says. We don't want to become what he wants us to be. We want him to become what we want him to be. Friend, there are problems on the left and on the right. There's ditches on both sides. Many of you are going to think that you are too good, that this salvation business is for other people, that you've lived a fairly moral life, and because of that, you're probably good the way you are. That God will look at your life and he will wave it on because of the other good works that you've done and they will somehow outweigh all of the evil that lies in your heart. God will consider them good enough or he will just ignore them altogether because that's the work that God does. But friends, that doesn't ever happen. The good news is not an evasion of sin. The good news is God meeting sin head on. God doesn't brush it aside. He sends his son to take the wrath of it that you might be forgiven for it. This is good news for sinners. Don't think that you are too good for it. Don't think that you are too good for Christ to save you. You all need saving. We need to be reminded that those who think they are healthy don't seek out a doctor in the same way those who think they are righteous will never seek out a savior. You can have Christ as a good moral example. You can have Christ as somebody who holds up every ideal that you could ever want. You can have Christ as somebody who who looks and who talks and who acts and who speaks exactly how you want him to do. The one thing you will never get unless you realize how big of a sinner you are and how much you need grace is get Jesus Christ as a savior. But there are problems on the other side as well. You are not too good for salvation, but you are also not so far away that he cannot save you. Your sin is not so ugly. It is not so deep. It is not so wretched. You are not so far away that Jesus Christ's arm cannot reach you and save you. This is the whole point of Paul being a paradigm for how the gospel works. You are not a worse sinner than Paul. You're just not. He was the chief. Think of the beauty of what Christ has done here. Think of the magnificent plan of God. Jesus Christ rises from the dead, 
allows his little church to flourish enough to raise the ire of Satan, and Satan brings upon them his chief instrument, Paul. And he, with a fury and a passion, he rages against the church. And so Christ says, that one's mine. Because in the end, I want to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language, and they're going to assume at some point in time that I am unable to save them. As my word comes down upon them and the heavy, heavy sword of my word comes down upon their hearts, they're going to think that they are so so far away from salvation. They are such deep sinners that they can never be saved. And I will give them Paul. And I will say, I saved Paul. I can save you. You are not just to trust that this word will work for others. You're not just to trust that Christ works for others, but Christ works for you as well, friend. Trust the saying, accept the saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The issue of Paul is absolutely perfect in its position. He is a paradigm of what it means. On the right-hand side, Paul thought that he was too good for salvation. Paul thought that everything that he did was right. Paul thought that his persecution of the church, his understanding of what his blasphemy was, and he didn't think it was blasphemy, he thought it was righteousness. Everything that he did was right and good and true and just. And Jesus shows up and he says, no, you are a sinner and you need to be saved. But on the other side, even though his sin was so weighty, Christ was able to save him. That is where we are. The good news, the gospel, is paradigmatic good news, but it's also praiseworthy good news. After going over his testimony, you can understand why. In verse 17, he offers this pan of praise to God, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I never understood musicals. I always thought that they were a very strange thing. Sound of music, any of that stuff. I, I just, it, it was difficult for me to watch. And, and I think it was really difficult for me to watch those kinds of things because it's such a weird mix of reality. Almost every musical is like based in reality. At least the movies are. Like the people are supposed to be real people and they're supposed to have real scenes and they have real emotions. It's not like a cartoon or anything like this. And so there's, there's this reality that's kind of surrounding it. There's not, it's not fantasy. It's not like Lord of the Rings or anything. It's like this real, true, living story. And then all of a sudden, there's pianos like out of nowhere. But it's not like just a piano that you hear that they can't hear. For some reason, they can hear it. And they all know the songs and they all sing perfect melodies and perfect harmonies, even though they haven't practiced this stuff. It's just spontaneous. I never it's a weird mix, man. I never, ever got it. It's not even that I don't like the songs that much. I just, I feel like it's, it's off-putting to me. I mean, I'm, it, I'm never sitting in Tim Hortons and have a piano play somewhere and get like 20 people together to sing a chorus of something. That just doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen over donuts, friends, it doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, so I, I was always kind of off-put by that, but I think that there is a reason. Songs poems are capable. One of the reasons why we sing is because they're capable of giving voice to things that we can't express. Like The words don't change. They're sung to a pretty melody, but they express something deeper than we can ever do without. So if you're making a movie, especially out of a book, in a book you can use words to kind of describe what's going on in a person's head, but in a movie you've just got their face. 
But when you put it to song, you can express these things in ways otherwise you can't. There's a reason why Paul breaks out into poetry here. There's a reason why he breaks out into doxology here. It's because this is beautiful to him. His salvation is something that he thinks God is praiseworthy for giving him. He breaks out spontaneously, like a piano appears out of nowhere, playing the music for his doxology, and he brings it forward. He is the king of ages, he says. He's not just a king in the future. He didn't just become king. He won't become king in the future. He was always the king. He is the forever king. There was never a time when his rule was not full and sure. And the world might have been spoiled by sin. It might have been ruined by the fall. And it might have been filled with hate for God and man, full of violence and indeed insolence, as Paul says himself. But it has never, friend, for one instant, thrown out of and soiled itself out of control. It's not. The world has never been out of control. God has always had everything perfectly in control and in his plan. His rule hasn't subsided for a second. He is the king of ages. He is immortal. And Jesus has died in reference to the body. So in a manner of speaking, he has died. But God himself is immortal. He has no end and he knows nothing of a beginning. He was before all things. And after all things are over, he will be. There's no way for God to end, for he is life himself. When millions of years passed, he will not have aged a day. He never ages, he never tires, he never weakens. He is immortal, and he is invisible. You are unable with your eyes to capture the glory and the greatness of who God is. You can't make his image out of wood or stone or hay or stubble. You can't make it out of sculpture. You can't paint his image. Our creaturely capabilities are not able to take in who God is. He is above us in all ways. Our senses are too stupid to be able to make sense of his glory. And he is the only God. This is the very verse of the song that we sing. He is immortal, invisible, God only wise. It's unfortunate that we didn't find the manuscripts that didn't have the word wise in there until after that song was written. We could change the lyrics somehow. The word wise is probably not in there, which is therefore a reference back to the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the Jews. This is a reminder of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one God. You don't get to choose your God. You don't get to sculpt him. You don't get to make him what you want him to be. He is God and he alone is God. You don't get to pick from a variety of them and find the one that works for you. He is the only God. The gospel is a product of the God of the Old Testament. He's not a different God. That wasn't a jealous, angry God where now we have a compassionate and kind God. He is the God of all. He is the only God there is. He does not change. He is immortal. He is invisible. He is the only true God. And because of this great God, unseen, immortal Because he has given us so great a salvation, let all people, and especially those who know him, give him honor and praise and glory forever and ever. For that is in heaven the very task that we are left with. No more will we work. No more do we have the task placed before us that we have placed before us now. When we get there, it is all praise and honor and glory forevermore. Let's be very clear. We do not gather and sing simply because we're told to do so. We are told to do so. We're told to do so many times. Go and read the Psalms. They're filled with it. 
imperatives to sing, imperatives to raise your voices. We are indeed commanded to, but we don't need to be commanded to. When you know the salvation that God has afforded you, when you understand it, when it has been an experience that you have had, you don't need to be told to praise God. It comes very, very naturally. I'm reminded of Luke 19 when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and people are shouting at him, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Friend, you are nothing more than a stone. That's it. You were a dead, random collection of minerals ground together by time and pressure. You had no life in you at all. You had nothing flowing through your veins. Your heart was as gone as a stone. And God made you alive. So we sing. So we praise him. We were unable to see his glory. We were unable to know him for who he is. But he has made us live again. Such rocks cry out in praise, and that's what we do. We praise because the gospel is a praiseworthy good news. But lastly, the gospel is also a precious good news. The gospel is a precious good news. Paul says he is entrusting this charge to Timothy. That charge goes all the way back to verse 3 when he charges him not to preach and teach different things. Go and tell these teachers that what they're doing is wrong and they need to clean it up. So he goes back and he says, I'm giving you this charge. Paul knew how precious the gospel was. He knew how precious the gospel was. So he had to leave it in the hands of somebody that he entrusted, somebody that had earned his trust over many, many years. Timothy was indeed that man. So he reminds Timothy that this great gift is being entrusted to him, not simply because Paul thought of him great, but because God clearly thought of him great. Prophecies had come down speaking of Timothy, saying his trustworthiness, giving an indication of his faithfulness. And he says, Timothy, act like those prophecies are true, brother. They were made of you. God made those prophecies. He gave those prophecies so that you would know that you can do what I have called you to do. Must be an immense thing to have words directly from God relayed, even if through a messenger, about your role in proclaiming and having the gospel entrusted to you. Paul understands that this is incredibly precious cargo, and so he is very clear that Timothy is worthy of having it entrusted to him. What's more, this precious good news is something that is worth fighting for. The ESV, I think, kind of grates against me that they wage the good warfare. No, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. You don't fight about things. You're not to be quarrelsome, Timothy. You're not to be angry. You're not to fight about everything. But the gospel, the gospel is something you fight for. You fight the good fight for that. You fight to keep the truth of it. You fight to implant it in your people. You fight to make sure that no one speaks out against it. You fight to make sure that the doctrines that are preached are preached in accordance with the glory of the gospel of the the God of Jesus Christ. That is exactly what you are doing because it's precious. Timothy is to fight for these things. And you see an example of how it's not precious to certain people. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they have rejected these things. They weren't precious to him. 
They didn't hold them. They didn't keep it. They rejected the teachings. They rejected the goodness of the gospel. And by throwing them away, Paul says they've made a shipwreck of their faith. They've run the ship aground. They've dumped its precious cargo and they destroyed its value and they left it behind. Listen to the seriousness that Paul puts on what they've done. He says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Because of the worthiness of the gospel, these men were worthy of being handed over to Satan so that they could learn a lesson. This is exactly what Paul says about people being removed from fellowship in a church. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 5, when they, he finds out that there is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother, he says, you have to remove him immediately. And he says these words in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So precious is the gospel that it is not to be soiled by people who are not living right or teaching right. It is to be protected from that. What Paul means by handing them over to Satan is you are not under the protection of the gospel anymore. You're not under the protection of Jesus Christ. You are flying out there in the world. You are there in the world where Satan rules and Satan can have his way with you so that you might learn of the goodness of Jesus Christ, so that you might learn of the preciousness of the gospel and the truths therein, and that you might come back and know the truth and the preciousness and the beauty of the gospel. What an extreme punishment. What an immense weight to put on somebody, but he did this specifically because the gospel is precious and it is to be guarded. We might not know what happens with Hymenaeus and Alexander, but we don't need to. What is important for us is that we consider the gospel precious. We consider it worth struggling and fighting for in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters who gather here that we find it worth struggling for in the larger world, that we find it worth struggling and fighting for against sin in our own lives so that ultimately Jesus Christ might be held up as the true loving God that he is. The gospel is worth fighting and struggling for in the church, outside of the church, with our words, our deeds, and our lives. Good news, friends, comes in a, a variety of flavors. It's Sometimes just all right. Sometimes it is good news worthy of a shout, and sometimes it's just worthy of a shrug. Sometimes other people think that there is good news that you don't think is quite good news. But this good news is not like that. This good news is worthy of song. It's worthy of dance. It's worthy of high things like poetry, and it's worthy of low things like war. It's worthy of your service, and it's worthy of your lives calling this good news is quite underplaying our hand. It doesn't quite reach what Paul thinks it is. This is a great kind of good. This is the highest kind of good. So let us respond well to this good news. Give our lives to it and pray that God might use them to make his glory known through the gospel of his precious son. Let us pray. Father, what great news you have given to us. What miracle we have placed before us daily in your word that you, who are offended to wrath by our sin, loved us unfathomably and gave us your most precious son. 
And then, on top of that, you called us yours. You gave us a great calling to fulfill. This is unheard of, and yet it is preached around the world. Already today, this gospel has gone around the world. Let us hear clearly the greatness of your gospel this morning. Let us live our lives for it. For the God who would give us such news is worthy of praise, of honor, of power, of blessing, of might, of glory, and worship forevermore. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.